The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 177 of the Civil Engineering Podcast. This is the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in both work and life. In this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, which is part of our Women in Civil Engineering series, I'm talking with Eva Longsot. She's a full professor at San Francisco de Quito and assistant professor at Delft University of Technology. We're going to be talking about civil engineering education and how it differs throughout several countries. And there's no one, quite frankly, probably better place to be able to talk about this than Eva. And I think you're going to find that out as I read her bio and you listen to this uh, interview with her. She's got a lot of experience internationally. And we're going to also be talking about you know, how it differs through all the different countries and, and what students can really expect, individuals who are trying to go after their uh, doctorates and graduate studies. Eva is also going to touch on the impact of COVID-19 on education, provides some great advice for uh, all those engineers, all of you out there that are maybe thinking about, hey, I want to go back to graduate studies. I want to go maybe get my PhD, you know, kick things up a couple notches. So uh, she's going to be able to unpack some of the things that you need to consider as you look at those and make those decisions, especially if you're already into your civil engineering career out there in industry doing things and, and, and what some of the trade-offs are going to have to be. I am your host, uh, Chris Knudsen. I'm a chartered and uh, professional engineer, civil engineer, coming to you from my home base somewhere in the lovely Oxfordshire, England countryside. And I really hope you enjoy this interview today, this conversation with Ava. I did. Uh, I learned a lot more about the academic arena. Also, what I learned is, you know, the civil engineering profession is pretty amazing. Each of us has this opportunity to go out and craft our own path through it. Eva has certainly done that. And I think you're going to be impressed with what she's been able to put together over her career, which she has many, many more years ahead of doing great things for the civil engineering career field. So more on that in just a moment, because before we get started, this is a free show. We've got to recognize our sponsors because without them, this wouldn't be a free show. So today we're going to recognize Menard Group USA. Do you have projects where you're faced with building on soft or loose ground? Does it seem like all the good sites are taken and you're always building on poor soils that are a challenge for conventional foundation approaches? If so, Menard may be able to help. As a specialty ground improvement contractor, Menard works nationally and internationally providing design-build ground improvement solutions at sites with problematic soils. Menard's techniques include controlled modulus columns, wick drains, earthquake drains, stone columns, dynamic compaction, rapid impact compaction, and soil mixing. Typical projects include warehouses, buildings, material storage piles, processing areas, embankments, roadways, port facilities, storage tanks, containment structures, and platforms. In many cases, ground improvement is less costly than traditional approaches such as removal and replacement or piling systems. Menard works closely with civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers to minimize foundation costs for a wide range of soil conditions, structure types, and loading conditions. To learn more about Menard Group USA or for help on your next project, please visit them at menardgroupusa.com. It's all one word, menardgroupusa.com. So let's do a little formal introduction so you understand who Eva Longsat is and what her perspectives are going to be. So she is a doctor. Dr. Longsat graduated with a master's degree in civil engineering from Virginia University in Brussels in 2008. She later earned a master's degree in structural engineering at the Georgia Institute of Technology in the USA, 2009, and title of Doctor in Structural Engineering from the Technical University of Delft in the Netherlands in 2013. 
In the academic field, Dr. Longs is a full professor at the Universidad San Francisco de Quito in Ecuador and a tenured assistant professor at Technical University Delft in the Netherlands. The industry experience of Dr. Longset includes design work in structural and bridge engineering in Belgium and working as an independent consultant in structural engineering in Ecuador. Dr. Longsot is an active member of the technical committees of the Transportation Research Board in Concrete Bridges and Secretary of Testing and Evaluation of Transportation Structures. Her field of research is the design and analysis of concrete structures and analysis of existing bridges. And with that, let's dive into today's conversation with Dr. Eva Longsot. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for this conversation. We're back. And Ava, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. How are you today? Doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Ava, I briefly introduced you to the audience uh, in some of the comments I made to kind of start the show. But it'd be really great if for our listeners, you could put it in your own words and tell us a little bit about what you do on a daily basis and uh, just a little bit about yourself. I am a civil engineering professor, and I work both at a university in the Netherlands and in Ecuador. Good deal of my time is spent teaching and anything related to that, supervising students, preparing class material, and everything from office hours to being in the classroom itself. And then my research itself is all centered on extending the service life of existing concrete bridges. So I work on a number of topics from bridge load testing to shear capacity and fatigue of existing concrete bridges, but it all ties together to this overall goal of being able to extend the service life of existing bridges. And besides that, there are also the other tasks that come with an academic position, such as administrative tasks. Here at the University in Ecuador, I am the editor-in-chief of the Science Journal of the University. So I take care of everything from seeing all the manuscripts coming in to helping the choice of the redesign of the website and the post-production stage and all that. And then there's also a large service component to the work itself which means that I participate in international committees as well as some national committees trying to uh, come to consensus on how we should typically relate to how we should evaluate concrete structures. That is just a lot of things that you're involved in. And I'm looking forward to just kind of unpacking a little bit more as we go along around the work that you're doing with um, concrete structures, especially bridges. From my own experiences, you know, even here in the UK and then, of course, back in the States, and I'm sure it's it's elsewhere, the age of some of the structures that are out there. And you, of course, touched on and the audience will have heard that, you know, that you are in civil engineering education. Some of them, and I know that I am as well, interested to know maybe how you have to structure your programs differently. Because you said that you teach in Ecuador, you're, you're also associated with the university in Netherlands. So just kind of curious if you could kind of explain for us, what are the differences and, and how do you juggle that so that you make sure that you're doing the right thing, depending on where you're at? There is a variety in philosophies when it comes to civil engineering education. And I'm originally from Belgium and I did my undergraduate and then first master's degree in Belgium. And that the Belgian education system for civil engineering really is sort of a bottom-up type of ID where you start from continuum mechanics and then your final year courses are really the design of concrete structures, for example. And that's a very different approach from, for example, the United States, where 
continuum mechanics may be a high master's level or PhD level course. And in undergrad, you learn how to use the code to be able to design structures. So that's a very different philosophy that you have there. And then the length of programs is different as well. Ecuador originally had a five-year undergraduate program that's now down to nine semesters, which is four and a half years. Students can as well speed it up by taking courses over the summer. As compared to, for example, in Belgium, the original system was a two-year candidacy and then a three-year specialization or license, which then became the master level. And in the Netherlands, we see that the undergraduate degree is four years, but then the master's is typically two and a half years. So in terms of length and IDs and demand, there is a variety between the countries, yes. We were kind of chatting a little bit before the interview started. We were talking about COVID because it's the, the big issue that all of us, it doesn't matter which country we're in, we've all experienced this now over the last, you know, as we record this in uh in June of 2021, you know, we've all been living with this for a long period of time. It's affected all of us. I'd be interested to hear, and, I, and again, probably a lot of our listeners would be as well, what's been the impact that you've seen on education? Because a lot of us hear it in the news, we read it, but I'd just be kind of curious to hear, you know, from your perspective, what's been that impact? And then are there any lessons that you've learned as far as teaching online and what is maybe really good for students who are in that online experience? Of course, the obvious change from the pandemic is that we have been fully virtual and my university here in Ecuador has not gone back to campus in all this time. And so we have been teaching everything online. And that, of course, required a major shift in the way we teach. I am a whiteboard and marker type of teacher originally, so I did not have any digital material ready for teaching. So it it really required me to not just start developing that material, but also go back to the drawing board and rethink what I really want to convey. Going through that process, I actually came to the conclusion that less is more and that really focusing on what do I want to convey? What do I really want to achieve with my students this semester is more important than just another module or another quiz or another fancy uh, online uh, tool that I can use. Because I must admit that in the beginning, I went a little bit overboard with all the possible tools and bells and whistles out there. I had a a lot of fun exploring all of those, but I think it's at times it can be a distraction for the students. I think it has also shown how important for teaching staff the professionalization is and that teaching teachers how to teach is also important. And that when we are faced with a major change such as going to teach online than providing that support and putting in the time to develop and talk about how to teach best in an online environment is extremely important because it's just so different from being in the classroom. Moving things into a virtual realm, it's one thing to, um, you know, maybe attend like a staff meeting or to have, for personal reasons, talking with friends and family Skype when it first came out and all the, you know, Zoom now and all these other systems. I've been a practitioner. I've learned to have to rethink how I go through and and even preparing for a charrette or some type of a design review in this virtual realm, because before it was just show up and everybody's in the room and, you know, things sometimes organically develop. But now because you're in this virtual environment, I've found that I've had to put a lot more time on the front end to be prepared to go in. So maybe like a 
an eight hour working day or working group might now take almost eight hours in preparation. For me, it's gotten better as I've gotten better at it. Some of the lessons that you've learned and then feedback that you've got from your students, you know, has this forced you to change how you were just mentioning it, you change different tools that you're using, but has it forced you to have to rethink how you approach things? And have you found that timing to prepare different than you were preparing for your lessons beforehand? I'd just be kind of curious if you can explain what that looks like. Two parts to that. It takes much more time to prepare for an online class. Uh, I could almost teach my class in front of the classroom asleep. I could walk in there and just teach it from memory, but that's not going to work in the online setting because you really need to think how to get interaction with the students and how you're going to show the material because you're all looking at a, a small screen and you cannot just wave your hands around and try and explain it organically. So it requires much more thought processes behind it. On the other side, on the side of the students, they are behind the screen all day as well. So their mental capacity, a cognitive capacity is less because they just get exhausted from looking at the screen the entire day. And they are lacking the interaction with their teachers and the interaction with their classmates. So as a teacher, we also have to transport ourselves and stand in their shoes and think, well, how is this going to be received by them? And if you're going to drawn on for an hour and a half, just showing slides and slides and slides, then by the end of the lecture, nobody will still be following you because they're, especially if it's the fourth or fifth lecture of the dates, there's, we know that, that we get Zoom fatigue and that there's a limit of what we can take. And if you're trying to learn and are staring at the screen the whole day, it's just very taxing for the students. I understand that you've had, you know, kind of carrying out this COVID theme here that you've done some research, which I would expect a good professor to do, go out and do some research. So you did some research with really kind of international colleagues about the impact that COVID's have on academics. And I'd be kind of curious if maybe you could share with us some of those outcomes. What were the things that you found as you did that research? So the academics that we looked at are particularly academic parents, because we were interested to see how academic parents who are at home homeschooling or assisting children who are going through virtual school are faring in this pandemic. One thing that I already touched upon is the amount of time that preparing online teaching has taken faculty members and the subset of academic parents is so much larger before than research and writing are the things that have been left out. Many have prioritized teaching and assisting their graduate students in supporting them who are also maybe struggling with their labs closed and all of that. And the things that would help you make tenures, such as re research and writing, are the, the things that have fallen down. So in terms of performance of these academic parents, we found that the pandemic has had a really hard hit on them. Two interesting things that came out of there as well is that we looked at the in influence of gender and there are no marked differences from our data. It has been the same across the board. So it's academic moms and dads have suffered equally with the squeeze of time. The other part that we found is that actually the mid-career faculty, the associate professors, are the ones who are squeezed most. And we tried to, to find reasons for that. And it seems that they are squeezed between still doing their research project, but then as well, trying to be there for the PhD students or master's students that they're supervising. 
and potentially in the stage of life where they have smaller children. So they seem to be the, the group that was impacted most by this pandemic. My career wasn't through the academic channel, but it seems like, you know, when you're that, there's that one stage in life where you've got, yeah, there's a lot of demands when you're a professional in it. So it's interesting to hear about that from the academic side that, you know, a lot of those same demands are there. And how do you make it all work in those challenges that can be there? You had a very successful career through the academic channel. And as I think things, there's in, in civil engineering, there's a few different avenues you can or paths that you can take, you know, academic being one of those industry design and then industry business being two other ones. I'd just be kind of curious to hear your perspective on maybe some of the challenges that you've had in the civil engineering industry as a woman. What have been some of the challenges that you've had to face and then how you were able to work through those? I do remember when I was in my undergraduate that I really felt like I didn't belong because we were just four uh, female students in the entire engineering program. So I really felt that I that that sense of non-belonging was very strong. And when I transitioned into my faculty position, I got my PhD at a relatively young age. So I was a new faculty member and the first woman in the department here. So I also then again felt like that. You know, the students looking at me like, what's that? Young and the only woman and a foreigner. It took a little bit of time to get to work with them, show them the research that I've done and, and the knowledge that I have to gain their respect. So it took a little bit of time to adjust to the expectations or to uh, make sure that my students understand that I have the experience to be teaching them and that I have the research experience that I can share with them. You're a foreigner, you're, <laughs> you're a woman, you're young. What are we doing here? So that's um, great that, you, you know, that you're able to work through that. My wife, not an engineer, but in a professional environment, and I, you know, having been married to her for 30 years, I, or coming up on 30 years, I know that you know, some of the challenges she had early on in her career in that acceptance and that you know, the need for her to be able to, to kind of really prove that she could do the things that other people were doing, which sometimes was, you know, as her husband was frustrating to have to hear, but she was able to work through it. It sounds like you've been very successful in that as well. So congratulations to that. We talked a little bit about some of the challenges that your academic colleagues have had and the research that you've done on on the you know kind of academics and, and juggling that with family life and some of those other challenges. If we could maybe move a little bit into a PhD program in civil engineering, and as we've already talked about requirements for university in, let's say, Belgium versus UK, US versus Ecuador, there's differences in all those. I'd like to explore some of the some of the differences in those, especially in the PhD program, but then what similarities have you seen as well? So, you know, what are the things that if someone is looking to do what you've done successfully, which is educated in this location, but then be able to, to take that to another country into another program, differences, and then some of the similarities that you've seen so that they can understand what that's going to look like for them. I'll start with the similarities. And the ultimate goal of any PhD program or when you graduate with a PhD is being able to show your committee that you're able to carry out research independently. And that holds true across all PhD programs. The differences then come down to the status of the PhD candidates. In the Netherlands, PhD candidates typically are employees of the university. If they're hired on a project, they get employee status, which means they're also paying taxes, building up retirement, and uh, have social security and all of that. Whereas, for example, in the United States, 
they may be more considered students and fee-paying students with scholarships, for example. That's one of the major differences in the status of the PhD students. And then in the contents of the PhD program, some PhD programs have a large chunk of coursework related to it. In the Netherlands, there is coursework, but it is more related to developing research skills, presenting skills, and practical skills, soft skills, time management skills, all of that. And the educational part then may be more related to teaching duties. And we see that a lot in Germany and Belgium that the PhD students really teach all the laboratories or they teach all the exercise sessions and they have to spend a much larger chunk of their time teaching. So their day-to-day life may look very different depending on where they're doing the PhD, but the ultimate goal is still the same, showing that they can carry out research independently. If you might be able to share some of the advice that you've got for female engineers that are considering to um, return to an academic world for a further degree. So those that are maybe just at their bachelor's, now are going to work through a master's, those that have already completed their master's, but you may be contemplating, hey, should I go this next step? What kind of advice would you have? What are the kind of the pros and cons of doing that? And then maybe what are some of the things that you've successfully navigated that path? You're there, you're a professor, you are a PhD, you're doing this research. What are some of the things that you wish that you would have known back before when you were just starting? There's a lot to unpack there. And I think the thing that you already mentioned there is the why. So the first thing a person needs to consider when they want to go do the PhD is what motivates and what drives them. And if it is related to a potential outcome, such as seeking an academic career, which is often what we hear that PhD students say, well, I want to go do the PhD because I want to become a professor, then I have to be a little bit of a Debbie Downer there because the number of academic positions is very limited. And I looked at some numbers from the UK time ago, and it's actually only 7% of those with a PhD that end up becoming a full professor. And there is a flowing out of the academic pipeline along all the steps in the career there, with about only, what is it, 40-ish percent go on to do a postdoc. You need to consider the PhD in what is it going to bring to you, what are the skills that you want to learn, and how they can serve you in life regardless which curveballs life is going to throw you. If you need to adjust to to things in life, such as a global pandemic or uh, changes in the job market, then how are you going to respond to that? And you will respond to that from the person you are and the skills that you have. So looking at how the, the PhD is going to help you develop skills and maybe give you the pleasure of doing research, that's the type of motivation that we would like to see students looking for rather than this fixed outcome of we want to become a professor later because then you will potentially be very disappointed. When it comes down to more the practical pros and and cons of deciding to go to a PhD, of course, depends on where you are, which season of life you are in and the potential financial facts of going to go to a PhD. If you are a PhD as an employee, you have a salary, but it's limited. And if you are on a scholarship, it's even more limited. So it may be not worth to take so many steps back and then have to pay off debt for many years or to have to postpone certain important decisions in life just because of the financial aspect of it. So that's something that people really need to think about seriously to see if it's a good fit for them 
personally, with their goals in life, but also where they are in life, which season they are in. You started off, and I, th- I think you caught that correctly, you know, always starting with why. There's a great book out there by Simon Sinek entitled exactly that, Start With Why. And if you can answer that question, then you can start to unpack the what and then the how. And I think that's a really, you know, really good points that you laid out again, that you know, it really kind of comes down to what is it that you're trying to achieve in life, both professionally and personally. Going through a PhD program, on the outside, looking at that, not having ever contemplating wanting to go that route. But I always looked at at that as being too much of a challenge to want to undertake because of uh, not necessarily the academic components of it, but academic from doing the work, but more academic from being in that environment for a longer time and wanting to get out into the real world, as it were. You know, as you laid out, you know, there's financial aspects, there's life aspects, there's professional goal aspects that all have to be brought into focus on that. And I think those were some of the the, uh, points that you laid out were really good. So I appreciate that. This next question maybe plays a little bit in line with what we just with what you just talked about and trying to determine depending on where you are in your life. And when I'm thinking of that, I'm talking about age bracket. So someone like me wanting to start a PhD program would be maybe just because I don't have anything else to do. Um, you know, from my perspective, past my shelf life when it comes to that. But for those that are, you know, that maybe might be in their early 20s, you know, mid 20s, so on and so forth, obviously there's a more of those life decisions that have to be taking to place. So you might have already unpacked this, but I'd be kind of curious for you to maybe share a little bit more about that, about what somebody's going to have to expect if they try to undertake that PhD career later in life. And I think you touched a little bit on the financial aspects, but maybe just, you know, kind of reiterate again. What is a day in a life of that PH student going to look like versus maybe if they were still out in industry designing or or, or managing projects? What we see more and more is that mid-career people from industry are interested in going to do the PhD in a part-time configuration. So then they may be getting funding from their work to keep their salary, but their company says you can dedicate two days a week or compensate with some of the time off that you have to spend it on your PhD. That is something that we start to see more and more. And what we see there is that, of course, just as with life, things get busy on all fronts at the same time. So that's the main challenge for those that go this route. If they are mid-career and they are juggling a flourishing job with starting research and learning research skills from a new and uh, family responsibilities, everything gets busy at the same time. And the time squeeze for the part-time PhD students can be a real struggle. I think what I take away from all this, a PhD program is a demanding path. And if you're someone that wants to go down that path, you need to be prepared and, you know, also maybe go find PhD students who are already in this, professors that you can talk with as mentors to make sure that you really are aligned and have a very clear understanding of what you're about to get into before you actually undertake it. What kind of additional advice or what kind of actual, you know, direct advice could you provide to to any young females, women that are looking to get into civil engineering who want to become a leader in this field. You have been successful on the path that you've taken in becoming a leader in the civil engineering field. What advice can you share with those that want to follow in your footsteps? Yeah, and I think I will sound like a broken record here, but finding your why and your inner drive is very important. So there may be expectations from people around you 
people that may say, I remember my physics teacher in high school told me engineering is not a career for a woman. And I didn't listen to that. And I advise young girls in high school or young engineering female students to listen to their inner voice and, and see what suits their themselves best and follow their dreams, follow their passions and not be burdened by other people's perceptions there. Eva, thank you very much. This has been a, a really good conversation. We've got more. So we're going to come back in just a moment. I'm going to put you into the CE hot seat. We're going to explore a few more questions with you. Everyone uh, listening will be right back in a moment. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, everyone. Welcome back. And it's now time for the CE hot seat segment. Eva, are you ready to go? Yeah. So question number one, right out of the gate, lots of successful people have uh, rituals or, or routines that they follow every day, maybe morning routines, something they do in the midday, go out for a walk, whatever it might be. What type of uh, you know rituals or routines do you follow or that you have found, if I do these things day after day, it works and it's really kind of contributed to your success? The rituals and routines that I have are a function of where I am in life and what life looks like. But at this moment, I have a morning routine, which uh, means I wake up quite early. I do workout or go for a run and then I meditate. And then I typically do some writing for work. And uh, after that, my family wakes up and we have breakfast. And uh, so that's my morning routine. In these COVID times, I also try to go for a walk once or twice a day to just, you know, not be cooped up in the house all the time. And I also tend to read every evening. Is there one book that you've got that's in, in your personal library that you find yourself going back to repeatedly, or maybe a book that you recommend to friends or you give to colleagues or you recommend to them on a routine basis? I'm going to pick one book that is in line with some of the things that we discussed today of finding your why and purpose. And that would be Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, uh, which is the story of the Auschwitz survivor, Viktor Frankl, and how he found freedom in his mental powers, essentially. And uh, it touches on a lot of uh, insights with regarding to purpose and seeing what we are here for in life. Even though you're in academics, you've got managers, you've got you know, people that you've worked for, maybe even the you know, professors that you work for as you're going through doing research. Thinking back on everyone that's been in that leadership role or one of your managers, management oversight for you, if you pictured your favorite manager or managers out of them, what made them your favorite? That's a great question. And the way I would phrase it is the manager who makes him or herself almost invisible and let me explain that it's the person who lets me work independently because I, as a researcher, I don't like people looking over my shoulder and seeing what I'm really working on, but at the same time is protecting me from the university management and whatnot that wants to take away budget from my lab. And that is there as at the same time as the so-called guide on the side for whenever I need support in building my career or moving along the ranks. One last question. This is, we kind of label this one the important one. It's the uh, critical civil engineering elevator advice question. So the setup here is that you find yourself getting on, on an elevator at a um, one of your conferences and your chance to back in the day when we could all travel and, and uh, social distancing wasn't a big issue. You get on an elevator, you've got 30, 40 seconds, let's say, with young civil engineer, and they ask you for some advice. 
what's that advice that you give them in that 30 or 40 seconds? The advice that I would give them is to remain curious, to keep studying, keep reading, keep exploring, keep up to date with the field, but keep evolving and don't become stagnant. That's great advice. Not just because you're a professor and you you know these things, but that is just really good advice in life. Eva, thank you very much. This has been a great conversation. I hope all of you out there that are listening to this uh, really enjoyed it. I know I did. I, I really enjoyed it a lot. Your enthusiasm for the civil engineering profession is uh, clearly evident. I'm really glad that you didn't listen to your physics professor. So glad to have you here. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. All right, everyone, I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Again, I really did. Ava's got a lot of experience. She's got a lot of perspective, especially in the academic world, but even beyond that in the civil engineering profession. So I really hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. And you can find all the show notes. You can find references to the books, websites, to the universities and everything in the show notes for today's episode, which you can go find at civilengineeringpodcast.com, all one word, civilengineeringpodcast.com. Navigate your way to episode 177, and you're going to find all the notes there. And I really look forward to seeing you again on the next episode. And until then, have an amazing civil engineering profession. The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.